0: Reflections from Asia has aired continuously over RTHK Radio 3 every Saturday since January the 3rd, 1998, as a result of many helping hands, all of whom deserve my deep appreciation. It was all started by RTHK's Paul Gordon, who phoned up in late December 1997 and asked me if I could provide four 15-minute programmes in January which I initially provided under the somewhat pretentious title of Wondering and Wondering. That sounded too vague, so former RTHK boss Martin Clark helped me dream up the title Reflections from Asia. He suggested the all-important from Asia rather than on Asia, thereby enabling the reflections to be outward as well as inward-looking. Thanks adieu to all the many RTHK personnel who have helped in ways both large and small to sustain this commentary during its lengthy lifetime. I must mention the late Tom Bowman, whose tireless efforts during one period kept the show on the road. I'm grateful to Hugh Chiverton and Jim Gould for their sustained encouragement and support. I am deeply indebted to Phil Wheelan, who has been responsible for recording, editing and producing a majority of these commentaries over the last 18 years. Phil has been extremely adept at finding, recording and blending some of the outside sound which is often included in these broadcasts. Finally there's my better half, my partner Isabel, who unfailingly puts up with my tensions, traumas and tantrums as Wednesday comes around and helps with ideas as I nervously intensify the often tempestuous three-day process of researching, focusing, choosing, writing, rehearsing and recording this weekly talk. Thanks and appreciation are due to all these friends because, as a result of their support, for the first and only time in my life, I've run up a very big score. This is the 900th consecutive Reflections from Asia. Today, I originally intended to analyse the result of the cliffhanger crisis over Iran's nuclear future. But as deadline after deadline for the negotiations are regularly all postponed, it continues to be just a cliffhanger crisis. So here instead this week are a few extracts from some of the last 100 reflections from Asia, beginning with a report on Liu Xiaobo, a man China should never forget, in January 2014. This week I must start with some good news, but at the same time it's sad news. The good news is that the outside world, thanks to the reporting of the New York Times, has for the first time in a long while heard from Liu Xiaobo, a rare Chinese citizen who had the courage to argue for gradual democratic political change within China and who since 2008 has been imprisoned for daring to do just that. The sad news is that Liu remains in prison and there is not even the slightest hint that the Xi Jinping regime will consider releasing him before his prison term expires in 2020. But the good news is also that Liu hints that his incarceration is at least bearable in some ways. For his reported message reads, quote, I'm OK. Here in prison I have continually been able to read and think. In my studies I have become even more convinced I have no personal enemies. The nimbus around me is shining enough by now. I hope the world could pay more attention to other victims who are not well known or not known at all. Now that's typical of Liu Xiaobo, thinking of others rather than thinking only of himself, as many politicians do. His alleged crime, for which he was later convicted, was helping to write and circulate an online petition called Charter 08, which called for the improvement of human and constitutional rights for all Chinese. For this Liu, after being detained for a year without charge, was charged in June 2009 for inciting subversion of state power. On December the 25th, 2009, Liu was sentenced by a Beijing court to 11 years' imprisonment. Little has been heard from him since then. The New York Times reports that a prominent Chinese writer, Yi Wu, now resident in the German capital Berlin, said that he had received this message from Liu Xiaobo but declined to elaborate on how he received the message or what form it arrived in. Evidently, Liao took up residence in Berlin after evading a travel ban on him within China and escaping via Vietnam. Liao, who claims to have known Liu Xiaobo for decades, told the New York Times that he received the message early on December the 9th from people in China. Liao said the last time he heard from Liu was before Liu was detained in 2008 when Liu sent him a copy of Charter 08. But still, Liu affirmed that this message from Liu is absolutely real. It is the first time I have received a communication all these years. I can't say how I received it, but I know it is genuine. It is touching to hear from him. The only person Liu has occasionally seen during his imprisonment has been his ailing wife, Liu Xia. It is said that she has been allowed to see him once a month only in return for which she has been effectively held under house arrest at their home, despite occasional foreign protests. At first sight, this message may mean that Liu Xiaobo, like many Asian dissidents before him, is being allowed to use his imprisonment for reading and reflection. The hard fact remains that earlier Chinese hopes that Xi Jinping's presidency would quickly initiate meaningful political reform could have been enhanced by gestures such as Liu Xiaobo's release from prison. No such gestures have been forthcoming. Those hopes are now dead. Next, the link between Taipei 2014 and Beijing 1989. 25 years after Chinese students memorably but tragically demonstrated for people, power and democratic yearnings by occupying Tiananmen Square for six weeks from late April until early June, Chinese-speaking students have done it again. For 24 days, from March the 18th to April the 10th, Taiwan students led a major protest against Taiwan's Kuomintang government by occupying the Taiwan Parliament, the Legislative Yuan. It thereby forced the government to abandon, at least temporarily, the parliamentary approval of a China-Taiwan services trade pact. This had been negotiated and signed in June 2013 by Taipei and Beijing as a follow-up to their 2010 Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement, after which there has been a considerable expansion in China-Taiwan trade. The pact ostensibly permits freer trade in services across the Taiwan Straits. So, in both 1989 in China and 2014 in Taiwan, the looming power of China's communist government was a fundamental factor stimulating student activism. In 1989, the Chinese students, having made their point on the need for democracy, but after failing to win any political concessions, refused to quit, even when urged to do so by the last-minute personal intervention of the personally sympathetic General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Zhao Ziang. Zhao was purged and disdained by the Communist Party, while the students who had refused to quit were massacred. In 2014, Taiwan students were in a more advantageous position as they took to the streets to indicate their anxiety that the trade-in-services pact would mean that China's greater economic power would work to Taiwan's disadvantage. While some authoritarian tendencies are still observable, particularly in the ruling Kuomintang, Taiwan democracy has been steadily developing for the past two decades. So it was initially reasonable to expect that an oversight law would accompany the passage of the trade pact through Parliament and that doubts regarding the pact would be thoroughly aired. But as in Beijing in May, June 1989, so in Taipei in March 2014, the powers that be were so completely convinced of their own political virtue that they disdained all criticism and compromise and so went ahead regardless thereby creating what would otherwise have been an avoidable crisis. As the possibility of civil disobedience in Hong Kong has been discussed, the question has naturally arisen. What have been the ingredients of civil disobedience or people power campaigns in Asia? There's much to be said in this, of course, but first and last, one essential ingredient is secrecy, secrecy, secrecy by demonstrators. As it happens, a classic example of this is in the students' occupation of the Taiwan Parliament earlier in 2014. The first that most people, and certainly the Taiwan authorities, heard about the plan was when the Parliament had already been occupied by the students. But when another rival group of students announced in advance that they would occupy the second House of Parliament, the authorities were prepared, the takeover was opposed, and the demonstration was defeated. Gandhi was a great believer in secrecy too. As he sought to promote nationwide civil disobedience against British rule in India, he knew he had to combine secrecy with publicity. Thus, in 1930, he gave advance notice of his famous salt march across India to protest the British imposition of a salt tax. But before the British authorities in Delhi could react, Gandhi had already set out on the march to be joined first by thousands, then by hundreds of thousands, and then by millions of Indians en route, by which time the authorities were virtually powerless to react. Gandhi was a great believer in cloaking civil disobedience in a religious aura. So was Philippine Cardinal Jaime Sin. In the wake of Ninoy Aquino's assassination in Manila in 1983, the word went out that Catholics should actively and secretly train for opposition to the Marcos regime. So when Defence Secretary Juan Enrile and General, Fidel Ramos suddenly took a stand of opposition to the regime in Camp Crame. Cardinal Sin was quick to go on air and call for the trained cadres to come forth. In short order, they in turn marshalled a million Filipinos on the main highway, Epifanio de los Santos, adjacent to Camp Crame. Both Enrile and Ramos were secure, but Marcos was definitely not. His army would not defend him and his regime quickly collapsed. Lastly, an insight into Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's verbal dynamism, which is not always obvious when he's seen to be formally speaking English on YouTube. But an immediate English translation of an extemporary Modi speech in Hindi, praising the record turnout at the last general election, gives a more dynamic oratorical view. Modi... The 2014 Luxembourg elections will stand out for the increased turnout. Whenever polling ended for a particular phase, I would eagerly await for the polling numbers and invariably my joy would increase seeing the jump in turnout. Be it the cities or villages, old or young, men or women, everyone voted in large numbers. In most places it was sweltering. In some places there was rain. In some places in the hills it was very cool. But none of this deterred people from going out and voting. Modi then stresses the fact that an estimated 100 million young people voted for the first time in the general election. I want to make a special mention for the increased turnout amongst youngsters. Way back, voting was not believed to be cool enough for a lot of youngsters. Today, that's history. Voting is cool, and rightly so. One needs to log in to Facebook or Twitter on polling day to see the number of selfies my young friends are sharing. Our party, our campaign, and me personally have gained tremendously from social media. It became a direct means of information and gave us the much-needed local power on several issues without any bias. Modi then notes how social media has limited electoral malpractices. There is one more thing for which we have to profusely thank social media. It has caused the downfall of manufactured lies and half-truths at a very early stage. Earlier during the elections, we had people whose lies would reach every section of society. In a time when means of communication were much less, they would get away with their same old speeches and half-baked assurances. Social media has changed all that. In this age of information, of social media, the lies that come out of their microphones cannot even get past the podium of their speech venues. Forget about reaching others. More power to social media in the days that lie ahead.